0: So I got an email from David, who's having some shoulder pain with with bench presses. He's doing a lot of ITY exercises, face pulls, rubber band exercises for rotator cuff strengthening, and he's still having a lot of shoulder pain. So I thought it'd be a good idea to come into the Purple Room, get a bigger representative model of what's going on in the rib cage, and the shoulder, and the scapula. So we have enlisted the assistance of Alfred here, and we'll talk our way through what may be going on. A lot of times shoulder pain is the result of a loss of range of motion that's associated with the inability to change the shape of the rib cage or change the position of the scapula as the arm moves through its arc of range of motion. So especially with compressive exercises like pressing, The exercise itself is going to promote a restriction in ranges of motion. If this is the case, then we need to make sure that we're doing enough work to maintain our ability to expand the thorax in the appropriate manner to allow us to maintain as much shoulder range of motion as possible so we avoid the painful ranges of motion. So let's talk about how the shoulder actually moves through its range of motion and where we would expect to see this expansion and compressive strategy that allows us to move the arm through space. In the initial phase of raising my arm up away from my side, I need to make sure that I get expansion in this posterior lower aspect of the ribcage. This prevents the scapula from compressing against the ribcage too soon or moving too soon, and I immediately lose range of motion under those circumstances. So maintaining this expansion of the posterior lower ribcage makes sure that I start from a good position. As I move the arm through this middle range of motion from about plus or minus 30 degrees from the horizontal, this is where the scapula actually moves the most so this is what most people would term upward rotation of the scapula and this promotes a compressive strategy in the upper back this also pushes air forward and promotes an upward pump handle position of the sternum as i move the arm through this middle arc of range of motion as i get to the top of an overhead reach i need to expand again on this posterior aspect of the upper part of the ribcage and if i can't do that then i immediately have a deficit in my overhead reach. so what david's doing is a number of exercises that promote a lot of compressive strategy on the upper back which is perfectly fine if that's what is needed however if he's promoting compression below the level of the scapula what you've already started to do is taken away the ability to externally rotate the shoulder and i'm beginning my my upward reach in an internally rotated position. If that's the case, then as I pass through this middle arc where I should acquire internal rotation, I'm starting from internal rotation, and then that can promote compression within the shoulder joint that gets uncomfortable. This may be why doing activities that are creating more and more compression in this posterior upper back area are not helpful, and actually may be detrimental to the solution. So from a solution standpoint, what we want to make sure is that we get expansion in the posterior lower part of the rib cage. We want to then promote the compressive strategy in the upper back once we have this intact so we can get the expansion on the front side as we pass through this middle range of motion. And then once again, we want to make sure that we get expansion in the upper back as we acquire our overhead reach. So David, based on your email, what I would do is I would back off a little bit on the amount of rowing that you're doing, and amount of upper back work that you're doing with your I's, T's, Y's, face pulls, etc., that are actually increasing the compressive strategy here. What it sounds like is you need to reacquire some of this posterior expansion to allow you to start from a better position before you go into your heavier pressing movements or active range of motion above shoulder level. So David, what I would do is I would spend more time working on expanding that posterior upper back and the posterior lower rib cage with activities such as this seated dorsal rostral expansion activity, where I'm supinating, externally rotating the arms by pushing my hands apart, gently pushing down to the table and keeping my upper back expanded as I breathe in and fill that space in the upper back with air are the activities that I would probably try to emphasize more so than your I's, T's, and Y's, which actually compress that. David, if you go to my YouTube channel or the Instagram page, you'll also find a number of exercises that can be easily modified to help you maintain the expansive strategies that you're going to need to help maintain your shoulder range of motion and keep training. So David, thank you for your question. I think it's a really good question because I think a lot of people are also dealing with this. It's not that I's, T's, Y's, face pulls, rows are bad exercises. We just have to be a little bit more selective as to when we're implementing these exercises and to have good reasoning behind them as a strategy to help us stay healthy and train. So I hope everybody has a great Monday. I will see you guys tomorrow it is tuesday i have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect okay so yesterday i posted a video about shoulder impingement that's gaining in popularity um it's on youtube as well but i got a bunch of comments on that one of the comments was hey could you talk about forward head posture because a lot of us are, are dealing with that and so I thought it would be a nice little tie into the shoulder. And so we'll just move up a, a level, so to speak, and we'll, we'll start talking about the neck and, and head position with this with this forward head. But let's be really, really clear about what we're talking about. So by traditional measures, what we're going to talk about is lower cervical flexion, upper cervical extension. And so the way we would describe this orientation from my perspective is that we've got concentric orientation of musculature on the on the, uh, posterior occiput going to the upper cervical spine. Um, so that's concentric oriented so anything below that from c3 on down would be eccentrically oriented if we turn things around we look at things from the front we're going to use the hyoid bone as our representation of, of above and below so below the level of the hyoid bone we're going to have concentric orientation of those infrahyoid muscles and we are going to have eccentric orientation of the musculature above the hyoid that, that goes to the mandible the result of all of this is going to be a passive retrusion of the of the mandible and these are the people that you're typically going to see excessive amounts of, of mandibular opening. Um, they that would often be described as hypermobility. So they might have clicking um, with with opening and closing, but they're but they're also going to obviously see this this magnified opening. And so that's a nice way to tell when you've made an adjustment of some sort or or uh, an effective change that you'll see a reduction in this excessive opening. Um, I think the, the, the forward head posture has always been looked at in isolation and so the strategies that have been utilized have been somewhat ineffective um, because they're trying to do, do a piecework when this is a relationship problem that is a resultant of all of the things that happen below the head and the neck. So typically what you're going to see with this traditional forward head posture is this is going to appear most often on people with narrow ISAs that lack the full, full breathing excursion. Um, So we're going to treat them as such. So we got to think about the relationship of the of the axial skeleton to the neck, to the head, to the mandible when we're talking about how we're going to uh, effectively work in this situation to try to restore as many movement options as possible. So when we're talking about moving towards uh, an exercise strategy. The quadruped activities are a great place to start because we're going to get dorsal rostral compression under those circumstances, but we're going to get the up pump handle. So, so the downward pump handle is typically going to be associated with, with, this, with this forward head posture, as well as the compressive strategy that we'll see on the uh, posterior aspect of the rib cage below the level of the scapula. Quadruped fits really, really well because we get expansion in both of those areas that are typically going to be compressed. So your forward reaches also fall into this. So there's a whole series of arm bar activities um, that would be effective in in the gym. Your cable reaches are going to be effective in the gym. And so again, we don't have to throw people on the ground and turn them into rehab clients. Now, a little counterintuitive. So we think about the strategies associated with with the narrow ISAs and where we're going to see those compressive strategies. So if I bring up my guy again, so we're going to see compression from the scapula down into the lower posterior rib cage. We're also going to see the uh, compressive strategy in the, the lower part of the pelvis. So hinging activities are now on the table as far as Helping us to restore movement options because what we're looking to do is we're trying to restore a normal exhalation strategy without compensation and so now if we can teach somebody to hinge effectively that that posterior lower aspect of the pelvis will move from its concentric to eccentric orientation if we can effectively maintain position in the thorax under those circumstances as well, then we're going to get the the lower posterior rib cage to expand as well. And so we can actually use deadlifts to help us restore normal movement options in these cases of forward head posture. So that's actually pretty cool. When you when you think about it because we rarely talk about deadlifts being useful in in restoring movement options because of their compressive nature so the thing that we have to consider in these circumstances is do i have any other superficial compressive strategies that would preclude me from using a, a, a deadlift under these circumstances so there's a lot of variations that we can use so we could use like a camperini deadlift which would help us promote the expansive capabilities Um, A snatch grip RDL is actually very, very effective in keeping the lower posterior rib cage expanded expanded, um, with the appropriate instructions. So again, there's a lot of how you do things uh, in influencing this as well. But like I said, the really cool thing about this is we can use our hinging activities. And then once we've actually restored our movement capabilities, Now we can actually keep some of these activities in the training program. So now you've got your kettlebell swings that are back on the table. And and like I said, all of your deadlift variations as well. So so we don't have to look at this forward head thing um, in isolation as it would typically uh, be be prescribed. We have to look at this as, as a relationship problem and the forward head posture is merely the result. So hopefully that sheds a little bit of light on this forward head posture thing. Hope it's useful. If it's not, please ask another question and we can go deeper into detail as we need to. Have a great Tuesday and I'll see you guys tomorrow. Good morning, happy Wednesday. I have neurocoffee in hand and that is perfect as usual. Very solid Wednesday coming up. Got some interesting stuff in the clinic. So that's going to be kind of fun and exciting. Um, I had somebody come with a question through yesterday's video in regards to some forward head posture stuff with a wide ISA. And then I got a question from Matt on askvillehartman at gmail.com. And they kind of coincide. So we're going to do a two birds, one stone thing. And hopefully address both of those. So uh, Matt says... I'm working with a client who has a wide ISA that cannot close, showing almost no hip IR, somewhat limited hip ER, limited knee to chest, straight leg raise. He's making an assumption that because of a limited toe touch that that he thinks that that his client has a, a counter-nutated uh, sacrum and, and doesn't have the ability to nutate and he's having a lot of trouble um, progressing this person. He's trying some side-lying stuff, some oblique sits, um, other sideline positions to try to gain uh, expansion and he's wondering if he's if he's on the on the right right track so so right away Matt the first thing that I would say is because of you, you've got a, a wide ISA and you've even mentioned very wide um, that that doesn't close you definitely have somebody with a, with a compensatory. Uh, inhalation strategy on top of an exhaled axial skeleton. So right away you got to start thinking nutated sacrum, not a counter-nutated sacrum, because the it just doesn't fit the, the, the archetype. Now, um, Matt also sent me a photo of this gentleman, and it's very, very telling. And while I don't like to use a visual representation um, uh, as an absolute, there are some things that, are, that are, are pretty clear in regards to this individual. So this person is compressed anterior to posterior, like you wouldn't believe. And he is conveniently standing with a shaped head and you can actually see the compression anterior-posterior in in, in his skull. Um, so this person is what we would say at end game. So if you go to a previous video on end game narrows, this is gonna be a similar uh, approach because what we have is an end game wide. There's a couple little differences that we'll talk about um, that will sort of clarify what you're looking at. And then we'll talk about strategies to get somebody out of this scenario. So the differences between between the winds and the narrows as they approach the end strategy. So all strategies that we're superimposing on top of these archetypes are exhalation strategies. So it's very concentric orientation, heavy stuff. So they're squeezing, squeezing, squeezing to try to hold position against gravity. Um, and so what, what you're looking at, Matt, is is uh, the the wide at the very end? So let's look look at, look at a pelvis to, to sort of show us what we mean by that. So when we look at a wide a wide ISA, they're going to have the IR and iliums and a mutated sacrum. So the sacrum is going to be four and the IR is going to be or the ilium is going to be IR, <clears throat> which means that I'm going to have a sacrum that kind of looks like that. So I'm exaggerating for effect but that's the mutated the position of the sacrum. At endgame, the last superficial strategy that they'll have is to actually bend the, the apex of the sacrum down and underneath them. So this is a really hard IR or ER force against the sacrum. And so the differences that you're gonna see with the, with the wide and the narrow, so the narrow is already gonna be compressed in the, in this scenario. So these are the ones that look like the true sway back. So you're gonna see something that looks kinda of like that where the, where the pelvis is sort of ahead of the femur here. With the wides, because this is the last com, uh, compressive strategy, what you're gonna see is they're gonna kinda of push through the hip. They're gonna push straight through the hip. And so they end up with this really kind of hard ER position. So they'll stand, almost in in what looks like a sway back, but their butts are gonna be clenched really, really tight. They're gonna stand in a little bit of knee flexion because of the orientation of the femur at the tibia, puts them in a little bit of a tibial IR. So they're standing in knee flexion. And where the narrows may be pronated in this position, your, your wides might look a little supinated because what they're actually doing as they're, as they're driving this hard ER through the pelvis, they actually claw the ground, especially with the lateral two toes, they'll, they'll claw the ground. So it looks like their toes got kind of chopped off at the end. They, they, the, the, the forefoot will look a little short under the circumstances because they are, they are literally grabbing the ground and pulling themselves forward in this compressive strategy. As far as the anterior thorax goes, they're still going to be pulling the sternum down with the rectus. They're going to try to pull up on the pubis, but because of the orientation of the pelvis, it's not going to sway underneath like it would for, for the narrow. But you're again, Matt, you're still dealing with a massive compressive strategy here. So gravity is not your friend. Um, this would be somebody that, that if you could get them in a pool to move around, they're probably going to love that because it's going to help them decompress everything. Um, I love the fact that you're going side lying because it does help eliminate a lot of the gravitational influences that they're they're going to be dealing with, but you got to think really really kinder and gentler. So, the the side planking might even be too aggressive because there's still going to be um, some breathing difficulties here. When you're driving breathing on these people, it has to be the gentlest of of, of breath. It, um, it's not about hard exhales. It's not about being aggressive at all. It is a calm, relaxed just movement of airflow. Um, you want minimal energy output under these circumstances, um, very low effort movement, you're gonna try to start to restore some gentle rotation. So you might even just start with, with head turns in sideline. You're gonna start with some, some thorax shifting and sideline, some hip shifting and sideline. What those hip shifts and thorax shifts are is, is a subtle rotation through the axial skeleton. So it's a great place to start. That's why I like to use the scapular PNF or pelvic PNF patterns in these because we can actually help guide these people into rotation again and then just, like I said, gently guiding the breath. Because again, if you try to breathe aggressively under these circumstances, all you're gonna do is kick on the superficial strategies again. Um, Once you get them to a a, a place where you're starting to, to see the restoration of rotation, then you can start to flip them over onto their back and start to work on like ipsilateral connects where you're same side elbow to same side knee. So now we're starting to get a compression, an expansion um, almost laterally. It's still rotation. Um, but, but, uh, but again, we're, we're trying to induce as much of this, this uh, compression expansion as, as we can. But again, it's got to be this kinder, gentler um, kind of a strategy. Once you do the ipsilateral connects, you work towards cross connects. And then once you start to do that, then you can start to use some leading resistance. So now we can bring resistance back into the game where we can get some reaching activities in here um, where you're going to compress one side, expand the other. So I hope that gives you a little bit of strategy on this one, Matt. These are the toughest ones to use. Now, Ivana is asked about how does this wide person get a forward head because they don't really fit the the traditional position for for the forward head because what a wide would look like where it is a lower cervical extension, upper cervical flexion. So we would call that sort of like a military posture kind of a thing. And so how does this get a forward head because they're actually retreating uh, um, on 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 top of the cervical spine, but if we look at sort of the end game situation where they're pulling the sternum down and pulling up on the pubis, what we have is, a, is an orientation of the head forward. So this is not a traditional forward head where we have the lower cervical flexion, upper cervical extension. The orientation of the cervical spine really doesn't change a whole lot. It's just the fact that the head is going to be shifting forward. What you're gonna see though, because we've got an actively retreated mandible in these circumstances, is the mandible's gonna get get pulled back. And so they're gonna stand and they're gonna be mouth breathers. They'll stand with their mouth open. You'll see the retreated mandible. And then the head actually just shifts forward. So we're getting actually more of a compressive strategy of the cranium down on top of the cervical spine. So again, not really a traditional forward head scenario um, and probably a little bit more compressive than, than what we would see with the traditional forward head. So you're going to see a lot of limitation in the upper cervical spine under those circumstances because you've got concentric on concentric all day long there because the higher bone gets pulled up. You've got concentric muscle activity pulling the mandible back. You've got concentric activity... Um, Coming from the upper trapezius grabbing the cranium and pulling down so we got a lot of limitations here Which is why we have to use this kinder gentler approach with these people to work their way out of these things so long explanation Hopefully, it was making sense. I probably rambled a little bit, as I usually do. Anyway, have a great Wednesday. Um, coaches call tomorrow, 6 a.m. Um, post your coffee videos, and I'll see you there for, for a great discussion at 6 a.m. tomorrow. Have a great Wednesday. I'll see- All right. It is Thursday. I have my NeuroCoffee in hand as usual, and it is perfect. Welcome. Okay. So most of us are are classified as what we would call technicians, which is we are the with the executors of the business. So so when when you're the trainer, like we're, we specialize in training, right? Mm-hmm. We don't specialize in business. Let me use IFAST as an example, if you will. It's just that we are both technicians. Neither of us were business guys. Okay, mm-hmm. and so so that right there. Yeah, it put us a little bit behind the eight ball as far as how we got things started. So we were basically flying by the seat of our pants. We were trying to figure things out as we went. So the thing that you want to think about, Nikki, is like you you, you say, okay, what am I best at? What am I really good at? And what do I want to do? And then you, you, you take all the other stuff that goes along with that, and you have two choices. Either you sacrifice your ability to do that other stuff that you like to do, um, and you try to be better at the other stuff knowing full well that you never will be because it's not interesting, it's not exciting, and it's not what you what you came here for, right? Or you find other people. So so Mike and I have like the world's greatest accountant. Mm-hmm. And then we have a business coach, Pat Rigsby, if I can mention Pat's name. I don't think he's afraid to, to have us mention his name. Um, Pat's amazing. Um, we we worked with Pat from the early stages um of bypass thankfully um he has been savior on many occasions to help us out um and and we have evolved you know there are certain things that we now understand and, and and do do better as as business people but but you know if if i had my way i would i would i would be the technician i'd be the teacher i would be the you know that guy all the time rather than having to worry about paying bills and Managing the finances and because there are certain aspects of that that we still have to do ourselves one of the one of the strategies. That is very, very helpful when, when you're trying to coach or observe or understand what someone is doing is to imitate them. Totally underrated. You know, students always ask, they go, they go, well, I want to learn about gate. It's like, okay, what do you want to learn about gate? Well, I want to understand what they're doing. It's like, okay, do exactly what they're doing. Like, imitate them and you will feel what they're doing. And it's like instantaneous and then the light bulbs go off and then they go, oh, now I get it. So, um, when, if you're if you're ever questioning something as, as to what's really going on, um, just imitate. So, so break, break the whole propulsive cycle into three phases. So early, mid, late, early, mid, and late. Okay. Knowing, knowing full well that there's a point where, where propulsion becomes maximum, which is in that middle area, right? When the heel breaks the ground, you're at, you're at max propulsion. Okay. But, but let's leave that off the table. Let's just make it early, mid, mid and late for the sake of argument. Right. You've got, you've got basically then, three foot shapes to deal with, but when you're, so if you're walking straight ahead, knowing full well that I have segments that rotate into ER and IR, when you get through that middle range, okay, that would be that that point where you have the greatest differential in, in opposite directions. Because they have to cancel each other out so you can go in, in that direction. Otherwise, if they if I don't have the opposing ERs and IRs through that middle range, I will I have to go off course, right? And you have to make a course correction somewhere. And people do this all the time. So the people that I see in the purple room tend to have a lack of relative motion somewhere. And then they make. They, they compensate for that, um, you know, so it, when, when you can see um, your your vision corrects your direction quite a bit when, when you walk. And so whenever you see if they walk across the room, you go, wow, that looks kind of weird. It's like they're making a constant course correction with every step because they probably lack some relative motion somewhere. And if it gets bad enough, then it might hurt. So through that middle range is that point where you're going to have the traditionally um, described closed chain pronation. So you're gonna have the, the, um, the eversion of the calcaneus and the, um, or the adduction plantar flexion of the, of the talus through that middle range, right? If we're, if we're looking at the um, subtalar position, right? And that allows the, the tibia to go straight over the foot so you can, again, it looks like you're walking in a straight line. So you have to pass through that pronated position, otherwise your tibia stays behind you. You're, you would get stuck in early propulsion if you, if you didn't pronate, okay? Mm-hmm. So, so the, the talus has to move. So if the talus is still dorsiflexed and abducted as you pass over the foot, you will use, you will use a late propulsive Foot position to try to pass through the middle propulsive phase, um, which is again tends to be problematic for a lot of people, because that means that they they have to make a twist somewhere else to stay straight. But understand that that the foot is going to behave just like all the other, all the other structures above it. Right. So when you have an, an internal rotation position, which is that propulsive strategy in the foot, so is the hip. So is the pelvis. Okay, they go together because that's where the maximum push is, and so I have to have this co- coherent strategy up the chain. Because if I have, if I have a, if I have a, a, uh, um, an inhaled or or um, an early late propulsive strategy in the pelvis, where I should have a maximum propulsive strategy in the pelvis. Now I have a problem because now I have too much relative motion occurring where I should not have relative motion. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I can't produce forces the way I want to. And now I got to distribute it differently. And then that might cause a problem. So either I lack performance, I can't push hard enough, or it becomes a, a, a point of discomfort. Um, so would you kind of pro- define early propulsion as like from initial contact to flat foot in, I guess, quote unquote classical terms. Or just the phase in which, like the foot is the, the entire foot is kind of going through that wave of pronation from the the uh, rear foot through the midfoot to the forefoot. So so let, let's assume we have normal relative motion. Mm-hmm. Okay. If we had to make a division, once that talus starts to move towards the the internally rotated position, so so plantar flexion, adduction once that starts to move in that direction, you're moving towards like that middle phase, right? Because okay. theoretically, and again, this is totally theoretical, when when the heel strikes the ground and the foot goes to flat, like before you would load it, before you would put any weight on that foot, mm-hmm. still towards that, that the, the talus is still uh, kind of dorsiflexed and, and uh, abducted. Got it. So when it starts to... Planner flex and a a deduct is when you start to go into mid propulsion yeah yeah but see again it's like it's like we're just throwing we're throwing out a theoretical point in time to have a discussion it's not very meaningful right Right. the the idea is like when i take a snapshot in time it's like what's moving does everything move the way the way i need it to to it to accomplish the task without you know, putting stress or strain on, on anything in particular. Right. If that's the goal. If that's the goal. Because again, cutting off of a foot and walking straight ahead um, are are not the same thing because of the the, the changes in the in the constraint in, in the, the ankle and the foot. Right. I intentionally limit motion between between bones and the foot when I'm when I'm pushing off in another direction because I have to create a turn. So the the compensation through the extremity is to make that turn and, and to drive the thorax and et cetera off of the foot. Right. Whereas if I'm, if I'm theoretically going straight ahead, I have to, I have to cancel out forces or I can't go in that direction. So going off this foot conversation and you uh-huh. were talking about the people that are making course corrections. Uh-huh. I'm almost thinking of like a classic waddling gait okay. individual. Uh-huh. That would that be along the lines because that would almost be more of like a, an open chain, pronated position where they're yeah, literally just getting cutting. pushed from side to side. They're cutting, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. so so their foot, so their foot tends to tends to stay towards that later propulsive strategy, right? So chances are their chances are their center of gravity is already forward, right? They can't turn, and so so yeah, so it becomes this. Right, push off, push off, push off. So they're they're literally doing like a like a slalom, you know, jump from from foot to foot as they walk. Can you say the name of those books that you showed us again? Nope. Um, I would so Michelle. I would get that one. Okay. Who's it by? Michaud. Okay. Almost see Michaud. Um. As far as description goes, it's it's better. Got it. Okay. It's better. Um, so it's it's a nice it's a nice place to start to develop your framework reference. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. And and you know after after this, then you can start to to superimpose some some specificity on there, so you can get something like Baxter's has has running stuff in it. Um. Mm-hmm. This is more of like, you can actually see it says in sport. So it's got a little bit more specificity in there in regards to some of these things that we talk about. But again, I I think they, they, they they tend to look at at great detail because it, I mean, it's a, it's a textbook about the foot, right? So all of the detail is just like, you know, kind of overwhelming at times. Right. Thank you yeah but if you start to if you start to look at the foot in, in its segments versus the again the the you know you can talk about the the gliding of you know uh the medial cuneiform you know with the navicular if you want to but but the reality is it's like okay i gotta i gotta try to segment this thing and make it a little bit a little bit simpler and you can i in my opinion you can and, it, and and you can actually make it look very familiar to you if you know how to flip stuff around in your head. But, but the end result, right, that they wanted was knee extension. Um, it doesn't address the rotations. So again, you have to look at the mechanics of the knee, it's like, okay, how do you get knee extension? Well, I have to have tibial ER. Well, do you have tibial ER, right? So again, those questions. You know, need to need to be addressed. Do I have a position at the pelvis that it negatively influences the knee? Do I have a position at the foot that negatively influences the knee? Right. So all of these mechanics come into play now when you're when you're trying to address. A, and, and we're talking about knees, but this is any joint, right? There's influences that will that will limit joint excursion. Again, is he using a compensatory strategy? To, to move through space that does not allow him to access his full full knee excursion happy friday so i brought my neural coffee on the road and it is perfect as usual even in the purple room so i'm in the purple room today i had a mentorship call this morning that went really really well but we talked about restrictions in the upper dorsal rostral area and how it affects the lower cervical spine. So I thought talking about that today would be of interest. Came into the Purple Room so I have a couple of models that we can use to give you a frame of reference and then maybe we'll sneak out into the gym a little bit and and show you a couple of ways that we can strategize to restore expansion to the upper dorsal rostral area and recapture some of that lower cervical range of motion as well. So the area that we're talking about is this lower cervical area. So this would be my cranium, my upper cervical spine is here, lower cervical spine, and these would be the upper ribs. So we're looking at T1, T2, where these ribs attach. But the area that we're talking about is this lower cervical area. Under normal circumstances, when this lower cervical area turns, the upper cervical spine would turn in opposition. So as we walk, our head is relatively stable, but this lower area is going to turn from side to side as we walk. So we get the counter rotation up here at the at the cervical spine. However, if we get this upper dorsal rostral compressive strategy, so we're gonna see concentric orientation in the posterior scaling, we'll see it in the levator scapula, we'll see it in the upper trapezius, we're not going to see this normal counter rotation mechanism occurring. And so we wanna make sure that we can restore this. So what we have to do is we have to capture eccentric orientations again, in all of this posterior musculature. There's some easy ways to do it, and there's also some tells to let you know that you do have this compressive strategy going on. So let's go over those tells first. So as we look at Alfred here on the table, one of the things that we can actually look at from a structural standpoint is this this angle between the spine of the scapula and the clavicle. And we refer to that affectionately as the Camperini angle, named after the late great Mike Camperini. And one of the things that we wanna look at is, we wanna make sure that that angle is about 60 degrees. That would be a normal representation. More often than not though, when we have this upper dorsal rostral compression, this angle is actually going to be less than 60 degrees. So right away, we have a visual representation of this compression. And what's happening here basically is we have the narrowing of the angle, and so the scapula actually just rides up this posterior rib cage as the upper trapezius will pick up its concentric orientation. Now, I can certainly try to assess the lower cervical spine manually to determine whether it can turn or not, but actually a better test is looking at, at end-range shoulder flexion. So, as I flex the shoulder, what I should see is a posterior tilt of the scapula is that upper dorsal rostral expands, but what I should also see is that ipsilateral or same side lower cervical rotation. So, if my shoulder flexion is limited, I kind of know that I've got this upper dorsal rostral compression. Strategy in play. If you've got some manual therapy skills, I've got a couple videos on YouTube that will show you how you can manually restore the expansion of this camping angle by depressing the scapula and rotating the cervical spine. If you don't, then you're going to have to use some exercise related strategies which we can cover out in the gym. Now before we head out into the gym, I want to go through a couple of mechanical issues that we might need to attend to as we go through some of these exercises. So let me give you an example for someone that might be a wide infrasternal angle that would have a representation in the neck of lower cervical extension, upper cervical flexion. So under those circumstances, I'll have a lot of upper cervical rotation available to me with very limited lower cervical rotation. So for me to actually create the expansive strategy in the upper dorsal rostral area, I'm gonna to have to drive expansion from the top down. So what I'll have to do is I'll have to use a neck position during the exercise that will actually max out my upper cervical rotation so I can drive the remainder of the lower cervical spine into a turn that will promote expansion in that upper dorsal rostral area. If I was to keep my head straight ahead, chances of me creating the eccentric orientation in the musculature that is causing the compressive strategy in the first place is unlikely. So again, I'm gonna have to turn my head all the way into this expansive strategy in the upper cervical spine that eccentrically orients upper trapezius, eccentrically orients an element of the levator scapula and the posterior scalene. So out in the gym, I'll frequently use chopping motions to help restore this upper dorsal rostral expansion. Many times, if we do any sort of overhead reaching under these circumstances, they can either be provocative if I'm dealing with a painful situation, or they'll promote a compensatory strategy where I actually turn the cervical spine in the wrong direction. By using a chopping motion, as I chop down and across the body, I can actually reorient the entire spine in the direction that I'm trying to promote expansion. I also need to remember to orient the head and the neck in the appropriate direction to promote the upper dorsal rostral expansion. Once I reacquire the upper dorsal rostral expansion, which is indicated by my restoration of my end range shoulder flexion, I can start to restore normal cervical mechanics to my activities. Under these circumstances, a high to low cable press fits the bill. I'm still going to promote the posterior weight shift, the posterior expansion during this exercise as I reach forward. But under these circumstances, I'm going to utilize normal cervical mechanics of lower cervical rotation in one direction, upper cervical rotation in the opposing direction. Now, under these circumstances, I get normal eccentric orientation of all of the musculature that would be causing the dorsal rostral compression in the first place. So once I can consistently capture this dorsal rostral expansion as indicated by my shoulder flexion measure, I want to learn how to maintain expansion under load. So this is where I may want to use activities such as unilateral carries, especially a kettlebell carry in a rack position, which places that dorsal rostral Area in an expanded position as I'm moving dynamically under load. So, hopefully, this gives you a little bit of understanding about this upper dorsal rostral area and the lower cervical area. I would suggest that you go to my YouTube channel and check out some of the manual techniques that are addressing this area as well as some of the other activities that influence dorsal rostral expansion. So, everybody, have a great day. Um, Hope you had a productive week. Have a great weekend. I'll see you next week.